I want to begin reading with verse 11 and take us through verse 26. So Mark 11, 11. you found that, please please pray with me. Father in heaven, we've just sung that there's a great sense of desperation for you. By that we mean that we understand that we are in fact without you lost and yet with you saved, found, delivered from sin and death. And so We even sense a desperation now to grow, to learn, to understand. And so we pray that you would help us uh, even in that. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a prayer, a house, I'm, I'm sorry, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it the den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the, law, of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This particular scene takes place in the life of Jesus after what we call Palm Sunday, after he enters into uh, Jerusalem. I've skipped that little uh, section uh, because I've already preached on that section. Uh, when I began uh, through the Gospel of Mark last, last October, I thought that by at least Easter time I would be here, uh, last Easter time. So I thought that I would be able to be around the Easter stuff by the time... Easter came, but I, I was in chapter 4, I think. And so I skipped ahead and, and, and preached uh, chapter 11, 1 through 11, or 1 through 10 anyway. And so I would just go back to that tape if you were a continuity freak. And uh, uh, I was last Palm Sunday. But, but today I, I want to come then to this beginning here now in verse 11. Picture this scene. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this triumphal, as we might call it, entry there where people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. And there he comes. And he stands then in the temple, the place he referred to as my father's house. He stands in the temple and he looks around at everything. And I've often wondered what he saw. Scripture just simply says it was late, so he went to Bethany. But I wonder in that gaze, 
person of Jesus looking at this huge temple. What he really saw, perhaps he saw what really it was it really was to be. It was to be his father's house. It was to be the very dwelling place of God among people. God says that I will dwell amongst my people. And it was, it was sort of the permanent provision of a very movable thing that was called the tabernacle. You might remember uh, when Moses began to get the details about how God would live with his people. He says, in order to live with me and me with you, you have to be cleansed. And you have, your sins must be atoned for. And so, so Moses was given by God a, a, a place, a way to do that. And we know then each year the priest would cleanse himself, would bathe to show that you have to be cleansed to be in the very presence of God. And he would take then the blood of this goat and he would take it into this little room called the Holy of Holies and would sprinkle it on this lid of this box which was called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had this gold seat over it called the seat of propitiation, the seat of mercy. And it was there where the blood of this substitute would come and fall and find its place and God would therefore be merciful to his people he would forgive their sins he would take the life of another instead of their own life and thus you see God said in order to live with me you must be cleansed you must be purified you must be forgiven your sins and that's not really a contemporary question so much that we ask these days if you ask people is it possible for God to live amongst a group of people they would say sure why not he's welcome but from God's perspective, you see, he just simply can't live amongst us because he is holy. And he says, if I'm going to live amongst my people, if I'm going to live amongst a group of people, they too must be holy. They must be cleansed. They must be purified. Their sins must be forgiven. And so, so he gives to Moses this, this place called the tabernacle. And in those days, the Israelites moved quite a bit, so it was fairly mobile. But then in the days of David, David had a hankering to build a temple for God. But God said, no, you're not the one to build it. It's your son Solomon who will build it. And so Solomon then builds, this, builds a great temple. And at the dedication of this uh, temple, you can turn in 1 Kings chapter 8, if you can find that quickly. In 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, Solomon dedicates this temple. And in verse 27, in the midst of this dedication, he's rather astounded by what's going on. And he says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence in this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. You see, the temple would be the, was the very presence of God amongst his people. It was the place where people would meet God and he would forgive their sins. And it was the place in which and to which, if you will, since God was dwelling there in a sense, although it couldn't contain him, but they were to pray there and to there that God might might hear them. And, and God said that his name would be at the temple. Now, when I was a little kid, I grew up in a small town in western Pennsylvania. And uh, 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 we didn't have mailboxes, per se. Um, 
that's not sexist, M-A-I-L, mailboxes, uh, we had little, little slits in our doors. There was a little mail slit. Some of you may have maybe this old uh, and know what that means. But there would be little slits in the door and, and your mail kind of would come through that. And if you were really in the rich person, you had a little box to catch it. In my house, it just hit the floor. But, uh, but over top of, of that little mail slot in most everybody's houses was your name. And so I remember reading as a child that God's name was in the temple. I thought, oh, that's where he gets his mail. And he does. Because we pray. His temple, you see, was to be a house of prayer. It would be the place that our messages, if you will, our notes, our requests, would go and God would receive them. You see there, he said, my, my name would be there. It was to be a house of prayer. And if you would read and take time perhaps this week to read through First Kings chapter 8 and you'll see how Solomon dedicates this temple. In essence, he says, God, when we sin and we turn and we come to your temple, please hear our prayers and forgive us. When there's famine in our land, please, we're going to pray towards this temple. Please hear us. Uh, when the enemies come towards us, we're going to pray towards this temple. God, please hear our prayer. It was a house of prayer. And not only... For those who people who were Israelites who were Jewish, but also the foreigners in their land. If you look in verse 41 of 1 Kings chapter 8, it says, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. It was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Because you see, Israel was to be a light to all the nations and people would hear of the God of Israel and they would actually move into Israel and be called what in the New Testament, this little technical phrase, God-fearers. It would be Gentiles, not Jews, unlikely to have been circumcised, but yet still live in the household of Israel, and they were known as God-fearers. And he says, even when one such as that, a foreigner from another nation, another land, a Gentile, comes into our place, and they pray towards this temple, they pray in faith, believing in your name, then please hear them as well. And notice over in First Kings in chapter 9, in verse 3, God responds to Solomon and the dedication of this temple. Verse 3, the Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting their, my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Which is to say, you see, that God is saying, not only is my name there, but, but my whole being is there. My, my, my eyes are there. That is to say that I'm, I'm watching over you. It's always interesting when the children were little and we'd take them to a park and I'd, I'd watch parents, you see, watch their children, mostly because I wanted to make sure if their kids got into trouble, I wouldn't have to do anything. So I would watch the parents to make sure, if, you know, something happened, they were alert to that. And, uh, and, and, and usually you'd watch the moms because the dads were usually not watching. But the, uh, the moms were watching. But it was always interesting to me that there could be all kinds, of, all kinds of mishaps, all kinds of cries going on in the context of the children playing at this playground. And, and one mom would get up and go do something. Even though there were a bunch... How did they know it was there? But they knew it was there because their eyes, you see, were always on their own 
even though they were watching them all. And God is saying, my eyes are in my temple. And what I'm doing, yes, I'm watching the whole earth, but I'm really watching you to protect you, to help you, to see you. And he says, not only is my name there, not only is my, are my eyes there, but my heart is there. My very affections are there for you. And so I will, I will bless you and keep you. I, I will make my face to shine upon you. I will be gracious unto you. I will bless you. And then he goes on. He says, as for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all that I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So he's saying, I, I want you then, since I live amongst you, if I'm going to live among you and you're going to be my people, I want you to walk before me upright and with integrity, with, with sincere hearts toward me. Just don't blow me off. Don't, just don't, just don't. Don't, don't patronize me. But I want you to walk before me in integrity, God says. And then verse 6. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commandments and, and the commands and decrees I've given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples. And though this temple is now imposing... All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this people and to this temple? People will answer because they've forsaken the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. He says, All right, this temple, this place is going to be the very dwelling place of God amongst his people. His name will be there. They're to pray to him and he will answer them. He'll watch them. He'll care for them. He'll love them from this very place to this very temple. But they, you see, must walk before him. And they must walk before him sincerely. And if they don't, then he won't hear them. And he won't watch them. And he won't bless them. Isaiah says it in a verse we've already read out of the Gospel of Mark. But Isaiah says it in chapter... 56 and verse 7 even of foreigners he says these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations and then in Jeremiah in chapter 7 we see this concerning the temple of God This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gates of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe? 
safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. So God is saying, don't, don't let this place become what it's become. By the days of Jeremiah, the temple was simply a symbol. It had no meaning in the context of the lives of the people. In fact, it was sort of like a rabbit's foot. A little big to carry around in your pocket, but a rabbit's foot nonetheless. It was their lucky charm. They said, we're safe because there's the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord is there. It really doesn't matter what I do because there's the temple of the Lord. We can live any way we want to and there's the temple of the Lord. It'll protect us. It's fine. Everything's cool. They marginalized God. And God says, you're lying and you're stealing and you're murdering and you think you're safe in my presence because you have this lucky charm. You have this rabbit's foot. You have this superstitious building right here. He says, you're not safe at all. We know what happened in 586 B.C. The temple was destroyed. It was rebuilt then by 516 B.C., not in the great glory and grandeur that it had been in Solomon's day, but a temple had been rebuilt, but still the people seemed not to get it. So the prophet Malachi has to come. This is in the last book of the Old Testament in chapter 1. Let me just read a bit, beginning with verse 6. This is God speaking to the people. He says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. You ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, Said the Lord. says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty, but you profane it. By saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled, and of its food, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations again you see even after all they had gone through in the days of Jeremiah still the people defamed the name of the Lord they didn't respect him they didn't honor him they marginalized him they just kept him over there during the days of King Herod the Great and the decades before the birth of Christ he began to add to this temple to make it bigger and more grandiose than it had ever been. 
he did it really out of pride, but he did it anyway. And he began to add to this temple. In fact, by the days of Jesus, this temple hadn't even been finished. It wasn't finished, ironically, until the mid to late 60s A.D. It was destroyed in approximately 70 A.D., but, but it wasn't really finished until then. But in the days of Jesus, the temple was huge. And there Jesus stands and he looks. Perhaps he saw what it was supposed to be. It had meant to be the very dwelling place of God. It had meant to be the very place where people would come and meet God. It had meant to be the the place where the prayers of the people of God would be heard and received and answered. And Yet, perhaps he also saw what it had become. Uh, He would see that shortly. Uh, The very next day, he left his place where he was in Bethany and went to Jerusalem. It was just a couple of miles away, about as far as from here to, to my house couple of miles away and so he on his way uh, he sees this fig tree this is a curious little story isn't it this whole fig tree thing Jesus is a little hungry and um, he sees this fig tree in leaf and he wanders over to it to see if there's any fruit on it and there isn't because as Mark says it's not the season for figs you think, A, shouldn't Jesus, the omniscient one, know there wasn't any fruit in the tree before he went over there? And the answer is, well, remember, this is Jesus, the Son of God. He was also hungry. Uh, and so, you know, he was this mysterious God-man. And there were times when his humanity played out very well. And he got hungry, and so there were times when he looked for food and you would say well shouldn't he have known that there wasn't the season for figs and he probably did that was the amazing thing this tree looked like it should have figs on it because it was so much in leaf the fig experts of the first century whom I try not to learn too much about because I assume there's no way I'm going to become a fig expert tell us that fruit appears on fig trees about the same time the leaves do though it's not ripe it's edible, not very tasty, but not ripe. So it appears that this tree, in the mind of Jesus, gave the impression that it should have, even though it wasn't the season for figs, figs. And that in some sense would be edible and be able to satisfy his hunger. And he went to it and it was just leaves. It appears as if there weren't even any little inklings of figs. And so he said, this tree will never bear fruit. And you know, that little expression of Jesus has driven some people terribly, terribly crazy. Because they get the appearance that Jesus is really ticked. And since he's ticked, just like a little boy, he kicks the tree and says, Nana, 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 you're never going to bear fruit again. That's not the impression at all. In fact, Bertrand Russell, who was a very, what I call brilliant fool, and I say that affectionately, the Bible says... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Sin doesn't make us stupid, it makes us foolish. And Bertrand Russell was one of the most brilliant men, brilliant philosophers, secular philosophers, that perhaps ever lived. But he had a foolish streak because he wouldn't believe God. And here's what he says about this as he maligns the character of Jesus. This is an interesting series of lectures you may want to read sometime called Why I'm Not a Christian. He says, you remember what happened about the fig tree. He, Jesus, was hungry and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply, 
he might find any thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto the tree, No man eat fruit of these hereafter and forever. And Peter saith to him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Then Russell says, This is a very curious story, because it is not the right time of year for figs. And you could really not blame the tree. Jesus wasn't blaming the tree. He was using the tree as an illustration. And you say, that wasn't very nice to the tree. It was just a tree. It wasn't a baby. It wasn't a person. It wasn't even a cat. And that's marginal. It was just a tree. And he had made it. So it was just a tree. The tree didn't go, oh, please don't curse me. We don't need to feel sorry for the tree. I don't know. It's just a tree. Don't get all druid on me. It's just a tree. Um, Since I cannot feel, uh, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history because of this event. You see, but it's not about the tree. In fact, Mark clears the tree. He says it wasn't the season for figs. So don't blame the tree. And, and so Jesus wouldn't have had any real reason to get mad at the tree. It wasn't about getting mad at the tree. It was about an illustration. Jesus knew where he, he spent the evening before looking in the temple. He knew what it was to be and he knew what it, was, what it had become. You see, the temple of the Lord had become a leafy fig tree with no figs. It had become a contradiction. Because you would expect on a leafy fig tree to find something. You'd expect to find figs. And when you don't find figs, you're surprised. And you say, oh, there should be figs here. And when you go into the temple, you should find people praying. You should find people worshiping God. You should find people fearing God. You should find people expressing their hearts to God. You should be, find people confessing their sins to God. You should find people, people desiring strength from Him and, and help from Him. But Jesus knew what it had become because after leaving the fig tree he walks into the temple and he sees exactly what it had become this was the time of the Passover and at the time of the Passover you know that the Israelites were to to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and they were to do that in the temple if at all possible do that at the temple in Jerusalem now if you were an outsider coming to Jerusalem it could be very risky bringing your own lamb. You know, lambs. They're liable to get bruised on the way into Jerusalem. They're not real bright. And you can say to that lamb, be good little lammy, I have to kill you when we get to Jerusalem. So I don't want you to get bruised. They just go bruise themselves. And so, a system arose, and probably a good system in some sense, that said, don't bring your lambs, we'll raise them here. And we'll sell you one when you get here and we'll make sure, we'll guarantee that it's unblemished. And then the priests got involved in the sale of those lambs and would franchise that out, little concessionaires. And they would take place in what was called in the temple the courts of the Gentiles. Now, when you first came up the steps in the, in, in the, um, in the temple, you would find yourself in the court of the Gentiles. That was the place in which the Gentiles could come but could go no, no further. It was a huge area about, of about 35 acres. Alright? 35 or so acres of space was the courts of the Gentiles. 
So it's a big area. And then inside would then come the courts of the women, where both men and women, Jewish men and women, could be. But the women could go no further. Then there was the court of Israel, which was a smaller area there, where the men could go. And then there were the courts of the priests, where only the priests could go. But in the outside, where all this was taking place, was this huge area called the court of the Gentiles. And you see, Israel always, as in 1 Kings chapter 8, desired to draw the Gentiles, even, into the presence of God. That was the place the Gentiles could go to meet God and pray. Couldn't go inside, but they could go to there. Now, it was all of the, in that area where this was taking place. And, of course, it was taking place in such a way that, that you wonder, well, where was the attention? Where were the minds of the priests on that day? Was it in making sacrifice or was it in making money? You get the impression with all that was taking place. Now, the big concentration of the day was, was making money because, you see, the priests made a lot of money. The high priests made a lot of money. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian uh, during this time, writes in about in the mid-60s A.D. and says that in any given Passover, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed. That's a lot of mutton. That's a lot of lambs. 255,000. I don't know how much they were going for, but could make a lot of money and you get the impression with all the hustle and bustle and all that was going on and Jesus' attention to detail as he looks in the situation that, that what he sees is not people who are concerned about God not people who are concerned about forgiveness of sins not concerned about, about knowing who God is but, but concerned about getting money from the priest's angle and the worshiper is simply concerned about getting this done we just get this done we got to do this. Let's get this done. The cheapest, the easiest, the best way to do this is to buy a lamb, get it sacrificed, get it wrapped up, take it home, eat it, and then we're done with this whole Passover thing. Was anybody thinking? I don't think so because the irony here was enormous. Because you see, to celebrate the Passover meant that you were celebrating your deliverance from slavery and they were doing that in the midst of Roman occupation. You would think that there would be somebody there saying, why don't we ask God to do to these Romans what he did to Pharaoh? But everybody was just sort of going through the motions. The irony was dripping. And I missed it. Because nobody was praying. Nobody was thinking. Nobody was really engaged. The priests were making money. The people were getting it done. Not only that, there were the money changers. You see, in order to really worship, you had to pay this tax. You had to pay it in temple money because the temple wouldn't accept money that had uh, a face of any other ruler or one that would be considered a god on it. And so you had to exchange your coins and of course, the priests had a monopoly on that, too. So the exchange rates were not terribly favorable. And they made a great deal of money. So you know what Jesus did. He went in and he, he, he they say, cleansed the temple better. He cleared it. And we don't know how big an area he cleared. 
but we know he also then began to block anybody just sort of using the temple area to bring in merchandise and take out merchandise. He began to block the area so you couldn't just use it in order as, as a pass-through to get from one part of the city to the other part of the city because this was to be a house of prayer and it was to be a house of prayer for all nations. Not only were the Israelites blowing it, but they were blowing it for the Gentiles because they were missing the opportunity to witness and to bring the Gentiles into the very presence of God, you see. Jesus, no doubt, was able to look around and see what the temple was to be. But no doubt, he knew exactly what the temple had become. So the next day, as they're walking back, Peter looks at the fig tree and goes, Wow! (laughs) Jesus really meant what he was saying. This thing is beginning to wither from the roots already. And then notice, flip back to Mark, chapter 11, and verse 22 Jesus then, in response to all that, simply says, have faith in God. You know, that's always seemed a bit of a non sequitur to me. I mean, it's, it's sort of something Jesus, you'd expect Jesus to say, you know. But, 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 but why did he say that? And then he goes on to say, um, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Why does Jesus go into that after the fig tree and the temple incidents? I think because he's saying they're not praying. They're not faithful. They're missing everything. They're to have faith in God, but they don't. That's the problem. They're a contradiction. God has said to dwell in their midst, and yet they've marginalized them. They don't trust Him. They don't believe Him. God says, ask me, pray to me, and I will help you. Come to me with your troubles, and I will deliver you. And they're not. So He says, here's the key. It's not in the temple building. And they'll soon learn it's not in the temple sacrifices. It's in the heart. Have faith. Believe. Trust. And then your prayers will be answered. In fact, it gives him this great bit of hyperbole, which we know is an exaggeration in a sense. It's a literary form to draw our attention to something. He wasn't telling his disciples now his party tricks. I want you to go out and move mountains into the sea. But he was saying, this is how powerful your prayers, this is how powerful praying to God is. If only they got it, if only they knew it, if only they would take advantage of this, if only they would understand, if only their hearts were right, if only they'd pray in faith. Perhaps they wouldn't be under these Romans in the first place. Perhaps they would understand their sins to be forgiven. Perhaps they would be walking free. But of course they did. They didn't get it. They didn't understand So what? I mean, so what for us? A couple of things very quickly. Number one, this. God is obviously very serious about our worship of Him, our walking with Him, our following of Him. Time to time I, I read about the seven churches in the book of Revelation and there's a couple that always catch my attention for they always catch me up short there's the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 verse 4 where Jesus says 
even of all the things they're doing, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. I think. It seems absurd that we would forsake the love that we have for Christ. After all that he's done for us, after all that he, that, he, that he is in us, and yet they did in Ephesus. They sort of drifted away. That's the problem with sheep, you know. Sheep sort of just sort of nibble their way lost. Your average sheep doesn't get up in the morning and say, I'm running four miles over there. But at the end of the day, your average sheep might be four miles over there. But it is kind of, you sort of nibble your way lost nibble your way away and that's a great danger we, we sort of we, we don't go hot to cold we, we just sort of cool off and God said no 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 don't marginalize me engage all the time that's why I call you together at least once a week he says because if it goes two weeks you're in trouble you need that every week you need these reminders you need to be told you need to think you need to engage you can't go 14 days you probably can't go 8 7 is a, a push it's, it's but at least I want you to hear I want you to listen I want you to re-engage so that you don't lose your first love there's the great word to Sardis in Revelation 3 in verse verse 1 these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars I know your deeds you have, your, you have a reputation of being alive but you're dead how'd that happen? and worse than that Everyone's coming around to the church in Sardis and pass, pass, patting them on the back and saying, you're the best church in town. You know, you're the alive ones. I don't know where we'd be without you. And they're buying it. They're saying, yep, <laughs> we're the alive church. And yet Jesus gazes into his temple and says, no. What happened? A church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying, just simply become unsatisfying. I wish that you were hot or cold. He's not saying that in the context of our relationship with him. He's not saying it's okay to be cold or it's okay to be hot. He's saying water isn't very satisfying one way or the other, hot or cold. I wish you were satisfying. I wish you were refreshing or I wish you would warm me up. But you're just yucky. You just make me want to, as he goes on to say, throw up. You're not satisfying at all. And you get the sense that that's what happened to Israel. You get the sense that they should have had fruit, but they only had leaves. You get the sense that they should have been engaging at the time of Passover and, and, and praying to God that he would help them and encourage them and strengthen them and deliver them. They were, but they were just missing it all the time because they had marginalized God. And I think, oh God, don't let that, don't let that happen. And I, and I think what they were missing, I think, are we missing anything? They, they simply weren't praying. They, they simply weren't going to God. They simply weren't conscious of his presence among them. Are we? Do you think about this all the time? I, I've told this story before. I'll never forget that when I was in graduate school the first time at Florida State University, wide left you, 
uh, Florida State University. I'll never forget, I was, I was walking to my office there, and uh, it was early in the morning. I had to get there early in the morning, like every major university. That was the only way to get a parking place, and I had to park in this gravel lot, but it was fairly close, and I, I parked there. And, uh, and I was walking to my office, and it dawned on me, I was thinking about God. And I began to realize, I think about him a lot. And I thought, thank you. That's good. I should be thinking about him a lot. So I used to put little cues all over the place. You know, I'd put a little something in my pocket. So when I reached in my pocket, you know, some guys would always would carry a little nail in their pocket. I don't do that because they scare me. But they, I'm not very handy. So uh, nail screws. Uh, uh, but anyway, just to feel that. And you go, oh, it reminds them of Christ. I, I would put little note cards, you know, around places where nobody else could see them because I wasn't very secure in my faith at that time. But I would sort of hide them in my office. I'd open a drawer and there'd be a Bible verse. Would remind me. Like, oh yes, I'm in the presence of God. That's why I'm safe. I'm not safe because I'm carrying my Bible in my pocket and it's superstitious. I'm not safe because I, I go to church and punch in and punch out. I'm safe because I'm in the very presence of God. And then I think, what were they missing when they didn't pray? And I think, what are we missing? Are we really praying? I don't want to say praying enough because you can't pray enough in that sense. But are we really a praying people? I began to think. And Jesus walked into this temple. For we're the very temple of the Holy Spirit. Not this building, but us. What would he see? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that we would not be a den of robbers and steal from you and the nations, but that we would be in our own hearts, collectively as a group of people, the very presence of God and a house of prayer. So please help us. I pray you would not allow us in any way, shape, or form to be pleased with marginalizing you at all or growing cold towards you or wandering away little by little but you'd grab us and you'd heat us up and you wouldn't let us go and Father that nothing would satisfy us other than knowing you I pray this in Jesus name Amen please stand for the benediction as you do I remind you of our Sunday school classes I remind you of our time Wednesday night. I remind you that we have elders available to pray as well. The response to the benediction is simply this, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.